0: go to the king of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and say, let my people go. And Moses had excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse. He had an identity crisis, and finally he said, okay, I'll go. Two weeks ago, week two, the day that we celebrated the Harvey's 20th anniversary with our church, we looked at Exodus chapters 5 and 6, but really chapter 6, Moses went for the first time Pharaoh said, I don't know who you are, I don't know who the Lord is, but there is no way I'm letting you people go. Not at all. I don't care if you want to go to the worship to the desert and to worship. It's not happening. And Moses found himself in trouble with the Israelite people. They kind of busted his chops a little bit, saying, if you had just left us alone, life would have been better than it is now. And Exodus 6, the first eight, nine verses are so powerful, the Lord pouring out his heart to Moses and his people, basically saying, it's all part of the plan. Trust me. If you're discouraged at some point in your life, there's a lot of places in the Bible you could go. I think Exodus 6 is a great place to land. But here's the catch. In verse 9, Of Exodus chapter 6, it says the Israelites were so distraught, they were so heartbroken, they were so disappointed at their life situation, they didn't hear what the Lord was saying. They weren't listening. And I think sometimes in our lives, that's a great parallel from, uh, you know, 1500, 1400 BC to our world today in 2012. Many times, everything we need is right before us, but we're not listening, we're not connecting. We're not paying attention. Last week, we jumped ahead. We, we didn't really study the first nine plagues. The Lord sent a series of plagues upon the Pharaoh and the Egyptian people, and we really focused in on the 10th plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn. But we spent a lot of time looking at the Passover, the plan of the Lord being realized. And, and the institution of the Passover cannot be underestimated in terms of its importance, not just to, to Jewish people, but but to Christian people. Many people say, where where did communion come from? Well, it was during the Passover feast that Jesus gathered together with his disciples. I, we would believe as Christ followers, he accelerated the festival. He said, don't do it once a year. He said, do it every time you get together to remember me. But it was the Passover feast. It was the breaking of the bread. It was the the, the drinking of the wine in many ways. And for Christians... We go back to Exodus chapter 12 and we see that as a foreshadowing of the death of Jesus Christ. And I want to just throw in a word about what took place Wednesday night. I know many of you were at our Ash Wednesday service, and I know for some of you, you've grown up going to churches that celebrate Ash Wednesday, really celebrate's probably not the right word, observe Ash Wednesday every year, and that's no big deal. For many uh, of independent Christian church folks like me, that's new in many ways. I've been to two Ash Wednesday services last year and this year in many ways. It is a great start of the Easter season. Focusing on not only the resurrection of Jesus, but on the death of Jesus and and how broken I am, how fallen we are, how much in need of a Savior each and every one of us really is. So last week, Exodus 12, we really looked at this Passover and this this foreshadowing of the death of Jesus. Today, we're going to look at maybe the most important miracle in the Old Testament, my opinion. We're going to look at the the Red Sea Miracle. It's a miracle that's going to define Israel for years and years and years to come. So grab your Bible. We're going to actually jump back to Exodus chapter 13 to begin, and I'm giving you this this account in five parts. And, And part one that I want you to see this morning is this, the Lord is going to lead the Israelites, but... If you put your your logical cap on, if you try to look at this logically, you would say this is a seemingly illogical path toward freedom. Pharaoh has said, get out of Egypt. You may leave. All the firstborn are dead. Get out. The Israelites start to leave. Let's read God's word together, beginning with Exodus 13, chapter 13, verse 17. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. This is the end of Joseph's life, 430 years before. He said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. Now, after leaving leaving Succoth, they camped at Ethim on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And we start chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth, between Migal and the sea, they are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zaphan. Pharaoh will think that Israelites are wandering around the desert in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. And the big idea, if we're trying to get a big idea, here's the big idea. The shortest shortest path to freedom is not always a straight line. Shortest path to freedom is not always a straight line. If you are a geography major, when the Israelites left Egypt and wanted to head to the promised land, they should have went what direction? Anybody know? They should have went northeast. That would have been the direction toward the promised land, toward the land of Canaan. The Lord said, don't go that direction, head south. And he tells them exactly why. He said, you're not ready for freedom. You're not ready to face the Philistine people. If a battle crops up, you might get scared, and you might want to turn around, and we're going to see that play out a little bit later today. See, the Lord's sovereign plan doesn't include the shortest path to the promised land. And here's our connecting point. Here's your connecting point for today. Sometimes I believe when we live our life in a zigzag, it's better for us in the, in the long run than a straight line. See, maybe you're young, maybe you're just getting going in life, and in your mind, you want to make a lot of money, you want to have a lot of success, you want to get there now, not later, and it just seems like you're living the zigzag instead of the straight line, and you're saying, God, what's going on with that? Why is that playing out? Maybe you're not ready for the straight line. Maybe that prosperity that, that you want so bad you can taste it wouldn't be good for you right now at this time in your life. Maybe the Lord's saying, just relax, slow down. There's a second thing that we read, and I didn't spend a lot of time as I read it, but how many of you found it a little odd that they were going to carry a coffin with them on this journey? Joseph's bones. I mean, what's going on with that? That seems a little bizarre to me that as we get ready to leave Egypt and we get ready to, they said they were heading ready for battle, they were prepared for battle, they were going to take Joseph's bones with them? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 50, the last chapter in Genesis, you would see that 400 years before the Exodus, Joseph was the first Israelite to enter that land. You'll remember, we studied in January that he was sold by his brothers. He was put into prison, and he eventually rose, of course, to second in command. Scripture says that the 70 people in total that came and eventually joined him in Egypt would eventually grow to maybe two, three hundred by the time that Joseph died. And when Joseph died on his deathbed, here's what he said. He said, swear to me that when the day comes that the Lord takes us out of Egypt, you will take my bones with you. I want to be buried in Canaan with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And now it's 400 years later. And those two or three hundred have grown to maybe two and a half million people. And as they're finally leaving Egypt, the plan of the Lord is finally being realized. They lift up the coffin of Joseph and they head south toward the Red Sea. Imagine that you're part of that traveling party and you have a little kid with you. And, and he turns to his mother and he says, why are those men carrying this box? And the mom says, well, honey, that's not a box. That's a coffin. Little kid says, what's a coffin? Well, it has the bones of a dead man in it. Oh, gross. Why are we taking dead man's bones with us? Well, honey, we're taking it to Canaan. But, mom, we're not headed for Canaan. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. That coffin is going to Canaan. And every day that they marched, every day that coffin was held before them, they were reminded that they were on the road to freedom. It was a reminder of the good old days when Joseph was in charge and life was wonderful for God's people. Part two of our message. We need to move on for time's sake this morning. Uh, See that Pharaoh and his leadership are going to change their minds and they're going to move out and they're going to seize the Israelites. Verse 5 says that when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go. We've lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and he took his army with him. He took 600 of his best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahirath, opposite baal Zephon. Um, when when we, how many of us have seen the Ten Commandments movie growing up? You know, this happens, what, in about two minutes? I mean, this is like a two-minute part of that movie where he says, get out of here, and they leave, and he says, what have we done? And they, you know, they get their chariots ready, and away they go. In reality, you know, several days, probably several weeks took place between the time when Pharaoh said, leave Egypt, and the time that the king of Egypt said, what have we done? We've lost all of our slave labor. But, but the point that I want you to see here, the big idea that, that is for us today is that the Israelites, excuse me, power and envy and evil intentions never benefit us. You may say, well, what's that got to do with this narrative? If Pharaoh would have just let the people go, just let the people go, life would have continued to be grand in so many ways. Granted, they wouldn't have had the slave labor that they'd had up to this point, but he would have continued to reign. He would have continued to be the most powerful man on the face of the earth. And he would have been able to mourn for for years to come the dead that that had taken place because of the, the tenth and final plague. But power and envy, and I would call it evil intentions, got the best of him. He said, what are we doing? We can't let these people go. And so they took off. And they went after him. And, and the key word I jumped over, at, the key word for the first point would have been growth. But the key word for the second point is greed. Greed. The Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, very, very greedy. Part three of our, our study this morning, Exodus 14, beginning with verse 10. The big idea is this, the Israelites sense the impending danger, and they begin to complain and cry out in anger to the Lord. And that's nothing new. If you haven't been with us, that's kind of been a staple of God's people all the way through. Um, Some people would say they're big babies. They're always whining and complaining about something. But we're going to see a whole new level of complaining. Look at verse 10. It says, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses... And this is sarcasm. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. For for hundreds of years... They'd been longing for freedom. Generation after generation after generation had been longing for freedom, and they finally were set free. And this is the first bump in the road. Granted, it's a big bump in the road. The Egyptian army's coming after them in all of its glory. But look at what they say. Just leave us alone. Let us stay in in Egypt. Why do we have to come out to the desert to die in the desert? And the big idea here, and I think this is a a connection point for us in 2012, the Israelites began to long for the devil they knew rather than face the unknown road ahead. Have you ever been there? Have you ever looked at your life or a part of your life or someone in your life and longed for change? I want something to be different. I want this person to grow up. I want myself to grow up. I want to mature. I want to be different. And yet the unknown, the fear, the risk of uncertainty got the best of you. And you found yourself becoming content with the devil that you know. That's what the Israelite people are really saying here. They're saying, yeah, it's been 400 plus years that we've had this oppressive life, and it's not been very good, but we're not sure what the future holds. We're not sure what's out there. They're allowing fear, that's our key word here, fear to get the best of them. Fear is driving the Israelite people. Part four of our uh, message today is really cool. I, I love this. This is where I believe Moses finally steps up to the plate. It's Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. It says, Moses answered the people. He said, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only To be still. Look at that last line. You need only to be still. Now, I know we don't talk back in church a lot, and I want to give you permission right now to answer this. I might even buy breakfast for the person that gets this right, okay? Here's my question for you this morning. Every time up to this point in Exodus, when the, the Israelite people, God's people, whine and complain, and we're making straw without bricks now, and you should have just let us stay in Egypt instead of die in the desert, and on and on and on and on and on. How did Moses always respond? Anybody know? Every time he did the same thing up to this point, who was it, choir, anyone? He cried out to the Lord, and he complained. And he said, I don't have to buy breakfast. He said, God, Why? God, why do I have to go down this road? And it's right here in the middle of Exodus chapter 14 that I believe Moses finally gets it. Light bulb finally has come on. He's put his big boy leadership pants on, and he says, hold on. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Be still. You're going to see the deliverance the Lord is bringing. And then I think maybe the most important thing of all, the Lord is is going to fight for you. Look at those five key terms. I I call it Moses' halftime speech. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Keep still. You're going to see God's deliverance. Yahweh is going to fight for you. Moses is stepping up to the plate in an absolute great and mighty way. And if there was a key term to this speech, if there was a key term to this whole idea, Moses is saying it's time to trust Moses is saying, I've been there with you. I didn't get everything before. I didn't understand God's master plan. I had excuse after excuse after excuse, and I know it looks bad now. I know the chariots are approaching. I know the army, the greatest army in the world is setting its sights on us. But we've got one thing they don't have. Yahweh, the Lord, is going to fight for us. And because Yahweh is going to fight for us, we Are destined to win. Well, believe it or not, the first four parts of this were really just the introduction for part five, which is the chunk of the story, which is the Red Sea Miracle. Let's read this miracle together. Verse 15: it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on, raise your staff stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they'll go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And this is just my commentary here right here. My guess is Moses, man, he's just given this impassioned speech. He's got the troops fired up. And, God, your plan is to march into the sea? Really? That's all you've got for me? March into the sea? Are you kidding me? But we don't read that in the text. So, obviously, Moses is a better leader than maybe I am or you am. He's trusting. Verse 19, it says, Then the angel of the Lord, who'd been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved in in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side, light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. We can still see Charlton Heston doing that, can't we? Stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Now, the Egyptians pursued them, and all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, it's almost morning, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. The Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. I love this next phrase. Catch this. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. What was going through the most powerful man in the world's mind when he finally realized, I can't win this battle. I'm fighting against this Yahweh. You remember what Pharaoh said to Moses the very first time Moses went before him? Anybody remember? Who is the Lord? Mockingly, right now, he finds out. Who the Lord is. Verse 26 Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back, covered the chariots and the horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Big idea. Big idea is this. The Lord defeats the false gods of the Egyptians in a mighty and powerful battle for the ages. Now, I need to tell you that there are many, quote-unquote, brilliant biblical scholars that would say it couldn't have happened like that. They would say it's not logically possible. They would say this is just a great story. They would say this is a a legend that's been perpetuated through, through the centuries of time to make people feel good. And I stand before you today... And say, I've never experienced anything like that. I've spent a lot of time on water. I've spent a lot of time on lakes. I've never seen anything remotely close to this take place. But here's what I want to tell you. I believe it to be 100% true. The greatness of God overcoming the false gods of the Egyptians. We only really know three things about this miracle according to the text. It said the Lord used a strong east wind to drive the waters back. The path of the sea was on dry land, and there was a wall of water on the left and a wall of water on the right. That's all we really know. But I'm going to tell you, this is the miracle that defines Israel throughout the Old Testament. Time and time again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, writers go back to Exodus 14 and the great, great deliverance. And my key word for this is simply the word power, God's power. Is incredible. Look at our bottom line, look at how this story ended. It says in Exodus fourteen thirty one, this is the last verse of the chapter, it says, When the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord, they feared the Lord, and they put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Wow, that's a lot, isn't it? It's, it's fun reading God's word and just seeing the truth really come to life. I told you that last week, the Passover, Exodus chapter 12, that it is a foreshadowing of the death of Jesus. And every time we've done it this morning already, when we gather together and we take the bread and we drink the cup, we are reminded that Jesus the Christ went to the cross for you and for me. And that's the great thing about being a Christ follower, is that we, that's what differentiates Christianity from all the other religions of the world. Jesus Christ died for each and every one of us. But here's what I want you to see about this week, Exodus chapter 14. While Exodus 12 foreshadows the death of Jesus, do you know what Exodus 14 foreshadows? The resurrection of Jesus. It reminds us that Jesus didn't stay in the grave. It reminds us that he beat death once and for all. Once and for all, Jesus beat death. As the Israelites started marching toward the sea, I guarantee you many of them thought, this is a suicide mission. We are going to die. And in a way, they were right. They weren't about to die a, a physical death, though. They were about to die a spiritual death and realize Yahweh, the Lord, is great and mighty and powerful. He's salvation for us if we'll only trust. Do I even have to try to connect the dots for us in 2012? So many of us, we're going through life, maybe even wearing the label Christ follower, And we're trying to do it all on our own. We're trying to figure it out all on our own. And the only thing we really need to know, 1 Corinthians 15 says, this is of first importance, that Jesus lived, that Jesus died for us, and on the third day, Jesus rose again. You know what we call that? We call that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So the next time you find yourself thumbing through the Old Testament, thumbing through the book of Exodus, and reading about miracles that the geniuses of our world say could have never, ever happened, be reminded that it's a foreshadowing of Jesus. It's a foreshadowing that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. And in that, my friends, there's hope. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And thank you for this Red Sea miracle that we we can't explain as humans. We can't draw a chart. We can't come up with a mathematical equation. I can't come up with a scientific explanation. The only thing I've got this morning is that you are God. You are the Lord. You are mighty and you are powerful. And that because of your master plan, we have hope through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, it's my prayer that as we sit here and we read the Scripture and and, and we go through this worship experience, we don't find ourselves kind of crossing our hands saying, who is the Lord? But we acknowledge, you are the Lord. You are our hope. You are our salvation. Thank you so much for Jesus, the difference that he makes. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Greg's been saying it for the last two or three weeks.